This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111. Today we are at the After the Digital Tornado Conference here at the Wharton School. That is looking back 20 years ago at the paper put out by our friend Kevin Warbach uh, about the digital tornado, about the growth of the Internet. This conference looking at how algorithms and policy have affected our society in general. We've got a variety of guests coming your way here in our second hour. Well, as the Internet has developed, so has the need to have our government agencies recognize their role in regulation for the sector. Yet it still feels at times that maybe those agencies are having to adjust to the ever-changing landscape of the digital world. So how has the Internet changed policy? That is one of the panels going on here at the After the Digital Tornado Conference. Gigi Son is a former senior staff employee for the Federal Communications Commission under Chairman Tom Wheeler. She also holds fellows positions at Georgetown Law, Open Societies Foundation, and Mozilla, and she's also a Penn Law grad. Sally Wentworth leads public policy initiatives for the Internet Society. Previously, she was assistant director for telecommunications and information policy in the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House and a principal policy advisor on Internet policy issues for the State Department. Great to have you both with us. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. I I, I will start off with doing a conference like this. And and we mentioned with Kevin Warbach earlier about that it's, it's not really a look back, but to a degree it is when you think about where the Internet was in 1997 and where we are today. Coming into this conference and being around all of these people, what do you think has been the most important thing and what is the thing that you will take away from it, Gigi? I think I'll take away two things. Number one is that everything changed and everything stayed the same. So it's amazing when you read Kevin's paper, and I just reread it again for the first time in 20 years. He barely talks about mobile internet, yeah. right, which is huge for people now, you know, the computers we hold in our pockets. Very almost nothing about privacy. I think he mentions it in the introduction, which is hugely important to people. Uh, we didn't really have broadband internet access. We were still talking about dial-up, yeah. and and the internet was just not that central in people's lives. I read from uh, his paper about how far it was far more important for people to have a telephone than it was to have internet access, and obviously that's completely changed. Broadband Internet access is so central to our lives. It enables financial transactions and economic opportunity and health care and education and civic discourse. I mean, you can't really participate in our society fully without a broadband Internet access connection. Sally? Yeah, I think um, in many ways the um, the policy debates, as Gigi said, are, have a lot of similarities from 1997. We were asking questions at the time about – what is the appropriate regulatory framework? Can we take the old framework and just apply it to this new technology? Do we need something completely new and different? Um, And I think at the time, the decision was that we weren't going to take the old rules and we were going to forge a new path. But at every step along the way, there's been these moments where we have to ask ourselves the question, is the policy environment 
proper or appropriate for a technology as transformative as the internet is. And the transformation, just keep in mind, has happened in an incredibly short amount of time. What people are absorbing in terms of change in their lives from everything from their social environment to their community to their jobs to their education is remarkable. Uh, and I was asking in my office, you know, what people thought about, you know, the policy difference between now and 20 years ago. And one of my colleagues, very bright young woman, said, well, I was learning to walk 20 years ago. <laughs> she is now the Internet policy future, right? So I, I think the the, the challenges are, are maybe may similar, but the technology is far more integrated into our lives than I think we ever anticipated. So do you think that the government is doing a good job of managing at whatever level is appropriate, their overseeing of the internet and of the companies that are that are involved in that industry? I think it's really, really hard. I think the complexity has gone up uh, enormously. And I think we still continue, um, at least in the United States, to try to take the old tools out of the toolbox and just apply them on top of the technology. And as a country, um, I think we need to have a conversation about whether things like our competition policy is up to the task. Mm -hmm. Um, The Internet is, yes, it is a communications technology, but it is now infused in every sector of the economy and will be even more so as IoT is fully deployed. Do we have the policy tools to really deal with that? And I I think the answer right now is no. Um, And so I think there's a lot of work to be done to um, not so much that everything has to be regulated, but that we have the principles and the mindset and the and the framework in place to to set us up for 5, 10, 20 years. Gigi? So Sally mentioned competition policy. I'll say specifically antitrust law. There's been a lot of discussion of late about whether our antitrust law is adequate or whether it's being interpreted in the right way. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, who is my favorite president, uh, broke up the railroads, broke up the oil companies using the Sherman Act and the the Clayton Act. So it, it has the power. But the question is, particularly, I would say, over the last 25, 30 years, has it been interpreted in a way that can really do something about the growing power of some of the Internet platforms. The other thing that I'm greatly concerned about is Internet access. Right. So companies like Comcast, like AT&T, like Charter that provide access to the Internet. Their prices are high. Their service is slow. Uh, and this Federal Communications Commission, so the one that came after the one that, that I worked in, is deregulating that sector very, very quickly uh, and very intensely. And I do worry that we still have 20% of this country yeah. that it does not have broadband internet access. You know, when you look at telephone penetration, it's like 99%. And if this technology, if this network is so essential to full participation in society, the fact that a fifth of this country doesn't have it is a real problem. Is is the expectation, though, as you mentioned with uh, that level of American citizenry that doesn't have quote-unquote internet access, does that change because of the fact, as you said, that seemingly almost everybody in this country has a smartphone? And a lot of people, that's their reliance on not only the way to talk to other people, but to be able to use the internet in that way. I mean, 
I don't think it's an adequate substitute. Okay. okay. So the new Federal Communications Commission does think it's an adequate substitute. Right. But my, I have a 12-year-old daughter. She does her homework pretty much every night on the Internet. I mean, can you imagine, you know, what it's like to do your homework on a smartphone? And let me tell you something. Yeah. That's what poor kids do. Yeah. You know, they go to the Wi-Fi. They try to get the Wi-Fi from the library. They sit in front of the library when it's closed or they go to McDonald's or they sit in these Wi-Fi buses that a lot of towns have with their smartphones and they they try to do homework. I mean, did you ever try to even just fill out a form on a smartphone? It's really, really hard. If you don't have home Internet access and a computer where you can do your homework, you're at a huge disadvantage. So what we're doing is we're cementing sort of the inequality that we already have in our economy by making sure that these folks or not making sure that these folks have proper connectivity to their homes, affordable connectivity. We are joined uh, by Sally Wentworth and uh, Gigi Son. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. So then when you look at and I think you have to almost take a, a longer-term view of not just thinking about this administration but beyond. What do you think, Sally, are, are the most important issues that, that have to be addressed by government to prepare us for the next 20 years? If we're looking back 20 years at this conference, what do we need to worry about for the next 20? So I think um, Gigi is um, exactly right when we talk about, you know, it, it should be unacceptable um, that people don't have access. And and for a country, it is, it's not just socially unacceptable or morally unacceptable, but in the long term, it's going to be economically unacceptable. Um, and I think one of the things the government has to do, um, and we all have to do through education systems and the whole up and down the chain, is preparation. I mean, the pace of change that is about to come our way or perhaps is even upon us with between, like I said, deployment of of the Internet of Things and then artificial intelligence on top of that to transform entire sectors of the economy and entire businesses that people are working in, um, they're going to have to be retrained. They're going to have to be able to adapt and work in this new environment. That's not somebody else's problem. That is going to affect all of us. And so I think this is um, no longer that the Internet is over here and it's this nice thing and it's cool to have. It is now fully integrated into every aspect of our society. And I'm not sure as a society we're fully prepared for that. And let me add, I agree with Sally 100 percent. I mean, everybody has to be on and everybody has to be trained to know how to use this and not just you know, to watch Netflix, okay, yeah, right. yeah. to actually do the kind yeah. of work. Um, we're starting to fall behind China in places like, you know, smart energy uh, and environmental and transportation, that sort of thing. we got to catch up, and that's partly because our workforce is not trained. But let me add just one other thing. I just think digital literacy is critically important. There's obviously been a lot of talk about fake news and people getting ads sent to them on Facebook and other platforms mm-hmm. that, that were just false, okay? Yeah. And, and it wasn't just on the right. It was on the left and the right. Yeah. So the Russians or whoever were trying to sow divisions between the Sanders and Clinton people and, and between those people and the Trump people. I mean yeah. – People need to be more skeptical. They need to they need to know what am I reading, 
Okay, and and what does it really mean, and is it really true? Right. And I think I, I think they're starting to teach that in the schools. I think if you're over the age of like 25 or 30, it's maybe too late for you. <laughs> uh, but we certainly need to teach our young people that not everything you see on the internet is true. Which is interesting because when you look at other parts of the world, it feels like whether it be Australia or Europe, wherever it might be, their regulatory level of control or of concern is much greater than it is here in the United States. Yeah, well, look, we have a First Amendment, and that is a bulwark uh, against a lot of things that folks do in other countries, right? You can regulate a lot more speech if you don't have a constitutional protection against government interfering in speech. So we have to be mindful of that. On the other hand, there's nothing stopping us from educating our children, from educating ourselves about what's real and what's not. And this is a very complicated problem. You know, I don't have the answer to fake news. And, and, you know, look, anonymous speech and sometimes fake anonymous speech has been with us since the beginning of the Republic, right? I'm, I'm reading Chernow's book on Alexander Hamilton. He used to write these screeds, anonymous screeds or synonymous screeds. Who knows how much of it was true? Half of it was invective. Yeah. It's really part of our Republic. But we have to be discerning how you teach that. I don't know. I just think that the, the fake news problem is, is a big shiny ball that everybody wants to solve the problem of. I just don't think it's that easy. Well, seemingly it feels like, though, that, that part of the issue is also uh, what the corporations and how, uh, are, are doing in this case and what role they play. Because we've talked about it on this show from time to time is the fact that there are still companies out there that – obviously are are thinking about internet security within their firm with all the information, but they don't make it the number one issue, which seemingly is a huge mistake these days. Yeah, it's kind of amazing you can even get away with that. But I, I, I think the issue of um, companies prioritizing uh, cybersecurity all the way to data protection and, and privacy is is something we just haven't done very well in this country. Uh, the fact that we can have a massive data spill like Equifax is just, you know, extraordinary. Um, the fact that our own government, um, you know, had a huge hack um, of tremendous amounts of information is extraordinary. Um, and so I think we have a, a long way to go to ensure somehow that these companies, as you said, prioritize um, uh, the protection of all of this infrastructure. I think it was put on the on the back burner for a long time, and it, it's just it, it can't be acceptable. So, do you think that this is something that potentially can be corrected through the next generations that are coming along, and obviously are more? I, I hate to say this, being fifty one years of age, but are more savvy. I learn from my kids new stuff almost every day about the use of the internet. You know, certainly there's going to be um, generational shifts in terms of what people demand, what people expect. Um, Although, yes, there is a generational um, difference between what what younger people can can absorb in terms of technology. We also see that the younger generation is far more willing to share information. And so that's a, a big challenge of how do we share appropriately and in what context. Um, I do worry in all of this, though, that this this focus on fake news or this focus on um, these real issues obscures some of the real core principles of the Internet that have been very valuable. Anonymous speech 
is a hugely important um, opportunity for people. In the United States, if you are a vul- part of a vulnerable group or you simply have something to say, it, we have to be careful that we don't um, go so far in a reactionary mode that we lose some of the kind of core values that, that made the Internet great and special. Gigi? So I don't think that either the transport companies, the Internet service providers, or the edge companies, the online providers, Google, Facebook, what have you, have any incentive to protect consumer privacy. So when I was at the Federal Communications Commission, we adopted broadband privacy rules. They did not apply to Google and Facebook because we did not have the legal power to do so, but they did apply to Comcast, AT&T, and the like. Congress overturned them using a very tricky legislative mechanism uh, last March. And I do think there needs to be comprehensive legislation passed by Congress that covers the entire Internet ecosystem that gives consumers a choice as to what information and whether they want to give that information over to any member of the of the online ecosystem. I just don't see the companies doing that on, on their own. As to cybersecurity, it is mind-boggling to me, as, as Sally said, that they're not securing their network. So Wheeler tried to sort of saber-rattle Tom Wheeler, uh, who was the chairman who I worked under at the FCC. He tried to saber-rattle and said, if you don't protect your networks, I will. Yeah. And you would think they'd want to. But I do think that says something about the state of competition. If there was real competition and, and companies competed on, I've got the more secure network, maybe you'd see everybody doing it. I don't know. I'm I, I'm not sure it needs to be legislated yet, but you have a couple more of these, you know, cyber breakdowns and, and data breaches, and maybe it does have to. Well, but I also think you have to look at this outside the communication sector. You know, we have to bear in mind the amount of data that is being absorbed about us across industries that yeah. needs to be yeah. protected. And these are industries that, um, at least we can say in the communication sector, there is a baseline level of security that uh, they're accustomed to providing. Okay. And we can argue about whether it's enough, but this is a, a culture of network security. But now you're an automobile manufacturer, and you are now collecting an enormous amount of data about me as a driver. Yep. And you don't have that culture of cybersecurity necessarily built into your business model. And take that on and on and on across industries. And I think we've, we have to have a really serious conversation in this country, I think, about that. Do you think that, that there are certain companies that, that have kind of emerged in this last decade in the digital economy that to a degree have taken advantage of how the system is right now and the lower level of, of real concern – uh, you know, I, I think of, of companies like Uber that, that are able to be able to, you know, get as much information as possible about our consumers. They're going through obviously what they're going through in places like London right now. So do you think they've, to a degree, taken advantage? I think people are starting to ask questions that they weren't asking five years ago. Consumers are starting to, right. to ask questions. And yet many of us, it's not somebody else, myself included, you, you clicked the I accept the terms button yeah. every time you go through a, a service because 
what are you going to do otherwise? Um, and some of these applications are now required for you to use. If it's a, if it's your insurance company's app or your, um, you know, some of the financial institutions, these are not um, negotiable terms of service. So as an end user, you're still kind of on the on the losing end of the transaction in terms of the information you're giving over and your control of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not taking advantage when there's no guidelines, when there's no rules, yeah. right? They're operating within the policy and regulatory framework that we have. It's just a policy and regulatory framework that really is not complete when it comes to certain consumer protections. The good news is I think um, we're starting to see consumer groups um, play more in this space. Um, I know uh, Consumer Reports, for example, in the United States is taking a very hard look at um, digital privacy and trying to do more to help consumers um, make the bargain in their own interests, right? And and so I think it's really uh, a positive thing. Um, to see in the marketplace some players start to emerge that can, um, you know, try to, to, to move us forward, I think, in a more positive direction. You know, maybe there are some regulatory tools that could be, but there's also some marketplace tools that I think we need to think about. And groups like consumer groups, I think, are really important and haven't been as strong a voice in this conversation as right. we probably need them to be. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111. Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney as we are at the After the Digital Tornado Conference, joined by Sally Wentworth, uh, public policy lead uh, for the Internet Society, and Gigi Son, former senior staff employee at the FCC, uh, who holds uh, fellows positions at Georgetown Law, Open Societies Foundation, and more. Uh, then... I guess the logical next question is, how much does some of this fall into the lap of the consumer himself or herself? You just talk about the I accept terms. I would venture a guess to say one in 5,000 people probably actually read the I accept terms when they when they click on something today. Yeah, I think that's I think. That's why groups like Consumer Reports are so important. I mean, the consumer does have to take some responsibility, and there are a lot of initiatives now uh, trying to educate the consumer, particularly around privacy options. So, for example, I use Signal, which is one of those uh, apps, those messaging apps that's encrypted. I also use WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. And there's been a push by a bunch of the groups to, to let people know what their digital rights are and how to protect their privacy. It can only... It, it's not going to solve all the problems, right. but it's at least a start. Because number one, I do think people care deeply about their privacy. They just don't know how to protect it. Right. And, and polls have shown that. So this is a start where people can kind of take matters into their own hands. But, you know, if you want a service and the only way you can get a service is by clicking through on something that says you will give up all your data, yeah. uh, you know, for here and evermore, well, that's the consumer is completely powerless. And it's those types of things that I think that, you know, government should be overseeing. Yeah, and I think we're starting to see moves by by companies to try to differentiate themselves on some of these these factors. So the fact that uh, that Signal exists or WhatsApp, and there are more and more of these that are coming online, is a good sign because yeah. that can be differentiating, and that is a, a consumer empowerment technology. We have to do more in the technical community to make these uh, tools easier to use. 
Um, anyone who's tried to encrypt their email knows that it is, you know, it's not easy for the average person. Yep. Um, so there's work to be done. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think, I think consumers do care, but they can't spend their whole day trying to figure all of this out. So then where do you think we are realistically headed here in the next few years? I mean, when you, I mean, that's a broad question <laughs> when you think about it, because, because you have companies that obviously have a level of concern, but they have to worry about the bottom line. You have consumers who have a variety of concerns and not necessarily at the top of them is worrying about their, their privacy. These are all factors that, if you kind of you know take a a very lean look at it, don't make you feel really good that the that the concern is, and the understanding is going to be there. I think I guess I'm inherently an optimist, right. um, and I do think we have 20 years or more of experience to build on, so we're not starting at zero. Um, more and more people are coming online. More and more entrepreneurs have opportunities to solve some of these issues. Um, so I, I guess I, I still am optimistic, but um, there are some tough challenges. I think that we need to perhaps go back and say, what are the core principles about the Internet that we value? Right. And instead of trying to pile on these sort of ad hoc, you know, we're going to tinker over here and tinker over there. Think about what are these core principles we want to hang on to? I think yeah. access is a huge one. Um, you know, the basic idea, as I said, of free speech, and sometimes that means anonymous speech, that the ability to communicate freely and securely. These are core principles that have been with us, and I think we should we should hang on to those and not be discouraged by today's problems. And, and value seemingly could be the key word here. Yeah, privacy, non-discrimination, access, I think are very key. Look, I've been doing this work. I've been a public interest advocate for open, fair, affordable networks for 30 years now. And for the first, I would say, 20 years of my career, I I was talking to nobody, right? People didn't understand. It was technical. In the last decade, people have really understood the importance of of access to the network, of openness, of affordability. So I think what I'm going to be spending the next couple of years doing, because I'm not sure we have an administration that is really going to do a whole lot to, to uh, you know, help effectuate uh, some of the, pro- the, you know, some of the uh, challenges we have here, and maybe there'll be some entrepreneurs who will help. I, I do think it's got to be a combination of both private sector and public sector. But what I'm trying to do over these next couple of years is just to continue to build constituencies for the kind of networks we want to see. And again, as more and more people get online, as more and more people you know, see that this is essential to full participation in society, they're going to want policies right. that match those values. Do you think that potentially comes more now at the lower levels of government, at the state level? More so than than the federal government. There's already talk about you know things that states like California may be doing, New York may be doing, just to try to make the make the change themselves. I think it actually gets lower than that. It's the localities. Okay. Right. So you're seeing medium and small cities around the country building their own broadband networks because the incumbent. Internet service providers are either providing them lousy service or no service at all. And they realize if they want their cities to live and grow and they want young people to come in, they need to have gigabit speed broadband. So the the best example is Chattanooga, Tennessee. 
20 years ago, it was the dirtiest city in America. That was its moniker. Now it's recognized as one of the coolest, hippest, technologically savvy cities because it already had an electric utility there, and they added broadband on top of it. So now you you had startups moving in. You have young people moving in. So people see the Chattanooga example and say, I got to be like that too, particularly if you're in the Rust Belt, like cities like Fort Wayne, Indiana, Erie, Pennsylvania. Yeah. They're starting to build these networks. They're starting to build in, in uh, they're starting to bring in companies. And, you know, I live in D.C. It's expensive. Yeah. The coasts, yeah. people can't afford to live there anymore. Yeah. So there are opportunities here for cities to really bring in fresh blood and fresh economic opportunity. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that that worries me a little bit about, you know, this move from um, the federal level to the state level. On the one hand, if we see some progressive policies and ideas move through the states, that can be a very positive thing. But one of, we have to remember one of the, the big decisions the FCC took back in the 90s was that we wanted cross-border connectivity in the United States. We right. did not want 50 regulatory environments for the Internet. And that was a big, important decision that they took. So, you know, we may be, you know, revisiting the past a little bit here and that maybe that's out of necessity. I don't know. But I think, you know, from the Internet Society's perspective, the value of the of the Internet is the interconnection of these network of networks all over the world without friction. And when you start carving it up and creating these these fragmented spaces, it becomes very hard for that vision to be real. Great having you both here today. Thank you very much for your insight. This is great. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much. Gigi Sons, Sally Wentworth. We'll continue with more here at the After the Digital Tornado Conference in just a minute. You're listening to Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 